Uh, Grace, if you let me also take, while you're turning to Matthew 27, we're starting a new chapter today, Matthew 27. Uh, while you're turning there, can I encourage you, please don't ever take for granted, uh, as was being pointed out earlier, our freedom to meet and to sing songs like this openly and to worship the Lord freely and openly. And let me also encourage you, don't take for granted to be able to celebrate and sing truthful, doctrine-filled songs put in a way that God created music and it moves your soul and your spirit and God gives people gifts and talents to play instruments and to sing and to, for the Lord to just bring all that together in a moment. If even one line of one song, the Lord struck your heart with that thought, don't take that for granted. Please don't ever. Let me tell you something. Uh, the Lord does not have to manifest his presence here anytime. He doesn't have to do that. And so always be thankful. Can I encourage, we'll get into the message in a second. Always come to the Lord's house having prayed for the Lord to move and to, he's here. He comes inside of his people, but pray that he would manifest his presence and that he would glorify himself. Move us to sing in a way that glorifies him. Not being mean, but I'm, I'm going to tell you, there are churches all around America today that are going to go through the motions, and there will not be a manifestation of God's presence. That could be us. I've already sensed the Lord manifesting His presence here today. Don't take it lightly. Pray for that. Beg for that. And even then, He doesn't owe us anything. But then give thanks when He speaks and answers our prayers. Matthew 27, in a moment we'll be reading verses 1 through 10 as we start a new chapter. So here's where we're at. I'm looking around and I think most of you have been here at least recently and heard somewhat of an introduction. Uh, I'm going to back up uh, to about three weeks ago, okay? So about three weeks ago we're going to touch on that far back, uh, the introduction, and then we'll read our text. So we're going through the book of Matthew. We are now the daylight morning of the day that Jesus will die on the cross. So that's the scene. It's really been the trials. And I don't mean like, like trials and tribulations. I mean judicial trials are underway. Mankind is examining the God-man. We are daring to examine the God-man. And we're coming to all the wrong conclusions as we're doing this. So we go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Two or three things are happening. Jesus is fully surrendering to God's will there, probably 11.30, 12, 12.30 at night, having just observed the last, the, the, the last Supper and turning it into the first Lord's Supper. And then the Lord Jesus surrenders himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. While that is happening, two other things are happening. The disciples are near him but sleeping, and one of his disciples, the traitor, the betrayer, is leading a large group, probably five, six hundred armed guards and soldiers to come arrest Jesus. They end up arresting Jesus. The disciples run and flee. They take Jesus back into the city. They're going to go to Annas' house and to Caiaphas' palace. And possibly, as we said last week, that may be one in the same uh, location. Just kind of maybe different rooms within this palace. Peter, we know, is going to follow at a distance very easily to follow all those torches and lanterns and right on into the city. And when they go to Annas and Caiaphas' palace, Peter, probably led in by John, the, uh, one of the other apostles, gets into the courtyard. And so Peter is warming himself by the fire with the guards and soldiers while Jesus is up on a second floor being tried by the Sanhedrin and the high priest, the current high priest, Caiaphas. 
We know that Peter ends up denying the Lord three times. He begins with the, hey, girl, I don't know what you're talking about, trying to say that I'm one of his disciples. Then he's going to up the ante on the second accusation, and he's going to swear, swear by God, God is my witness. I do not know the man. He's trying to, to he's, he's afraid they're going to kill him or do something to him. And so he's backing up, and he's denying the Lord. Ultimately, he ends up actually cursing and taking oaths and invoking even a curse Something along the line, may God strike me dead. May God assign me to destruction. May he damn me to destruction if I know that man. And then the rooster crows, just as Jesus predicted. Peter realizes the Lord's prophecy has come true. He has denied him three times on that very night when he swore he wouldn't do it. And meanwhile, the whole trial has taken place up on the second floor in this palace, in these outer rooms. So here's where we're going to go back three weeks, all right? Very quickly, I'm going to get the highlights from three weeks. This is May 8th, Mother's Day. We kind of touched on this. Here's what we learned. Jesus' trial was split into two trials. There was a Jewish trial that was religious in nature. There was a Roman trial that was civil in nature. Each had three phases. Phase one of the Jewish trial was before Annas, the former high priest. Phase two is really the main, so this is the Jewish trial, this is the main, this is the primary, and that's before Caiaphas. So probably while Caiaphas' Caiaphas's father-in-law, the former high priest Annas, is talking to Jesus about his doctrine and his disciples, Caiaphas is getting the Sanhedrin members together to do the real trial of Christ. And then that takes place in the night. And then ultimately we're going to come to verse 1 in a moment, that's going to be the third and final phase of the Jewish trial. But that is a crooked trial, a very wicked and corrupt. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. Then in verse 2 this morning, you're going to see a transition from the third phase of the Jewish trial at daylight. They're going to send him and begin the Roman phase. He's going to be sent to Pilate, phase 1. Pilate will send him over to Herod, phase 2. Herod will send him back to Pilate, phase 3. Pilate will give the ultimate declaration that he will be crucified. But let's go back to Caiaphas's Jewish trial. This is where we were three weeks ago. That, that trial in the night was completely corrupt and illegal. I'm not going to go over all of the highlights of that, but I'm going to give you several reasons why that trial was corrupt. Number one, it was private. Trials were supposed to be public and announced. This was private. Two, it was in the nighttime. Three, Jesus had no lawyer. Four, they're going to end up announcing a guilty verdict on the same day the trial begins. That's illegal. You can't do that. Five, Jesus' judge, the high priest, and even the other members of the Sanhedrin are supposed to be his judge and the jurors. They're the judges and the jurors, but they're also his prosecutors. And if you think through that, that is totally twisted. No one has a chance if the judge is out to get them and the jury is out to get them, and they're actually the ones prosecuting the, the case. So he has no chance. He will not get a fair trial. Also, what, making this a corrupt, illegal trial was that they had reached their verdict before the trial began. They have a pre-trial verdict of guilty. What's the charge? We don't know the charge yet. We just know he's guilty. And then after that, they have a pre-trial sentence. We know he's guilty, and he will be worthy of death. Again, what is the charge? We don't know the charge. We've got to discover the charge. He is guilty, and he must die for what he has done. And then all along, we know that they are taking and receiving witness from false witnesses who apparently are even paid and conjured and coached to lie. 
And so where that message completed was in a final sentencing of injustice, the Sanhedrin, led by the high priest, pronounced the Lord Jesus Christ guilty of blasphemy and something I've never seen or heard of in my life. Those men leave their seats and pounce on the Lord Jesus Christ and begin to spit in his face and begin to hit him in his face. And just to add mockery to the punching, they slap him in his face and even go and put something over him or blindfolding him. And they begin to slap and to punch and to ask him, prophesy which one of us is doing this. If you're the Christ, then you should know the name of the one who just hit you or who's about to hit you. They make it literally, literally they are spitting in the face of God. That's what's happening in Israel. And with that in mind, let's read verses 1 through 10. And in our reading, we'll be noticing four things that we're going to come back to this morning. Verse 1. So Peter has denied the Lord three times. They've had two phases of the Jewish trial at night. When morning came, it's that Friday morning, good Friday morning. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people, this is the Sanhedrin, took counsel. We're thinking, didn't they already do this? Is this a repeat of verse 65, 66? No, it's not. This is separate. Morning came, the chief priest and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And, so there's the end of the Jewish phase. Here's the kickoff heading toward the Roman phase. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. The prefect of the region, as we will see. We know his name is Pontius Pilate. So they give their final sentencing. He's guilty. He's deserving of death. Now we've got to send him to the Roman prefect, the Roman governor, Pilate. But now Matthew, only giving two verses to keep us on track of the big picture, what's going on in the trials, the judicial trials of Christ, he now brings us back to something that only Matthew of the four gospels, I'm not going to be referring to insight and input from the other gospels this morning. Just Matthew does this, verse 3. Then when Judas... His betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned. When, I don't know exactly. Maybe he was in that courtyard. Maybe he's up on the second level as the one who betrayed the Lord. Maybe he's being brought in for some testimony. Who knows what is happening? But verse 3, Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind. This is so strange. He changed his mind. Like literally, whole new way of thinking. We know that Satan had entered the physical body of this man named Judas Iscariot. It is clear now that Satan, having used him and abused him, Satan is now exited, and it's just Judas left to himself, this greedy man. Yet the Bible says he changed his mind when he saw that Jesus was condemned. Like, how much did he change his mind? He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He brings the money back, saying, catch this, I mean, everything in this text at first looks like what should happen after the great sin. Everything looks in place. Yes, this is what he should do. He changed his mind. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned. Do you realize there are people in this room listening right now who have never formed that little short sentence? Sitting here today, they've never formed that sentence and spoken it to the main one that they need to speak to, to God. I have sinned. And some of you are right now thinking, have I even ever said that? This man says it. Verse 4 again. 
He says to the chief priests and elders, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. I've just sinned in the last few hours. But they said to him, they are so callous. This man is wanting to make things right, apparently. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Looks like you've got problems. Those are your problems. We are not going to deal with that. We're busy. we got a trial. We're getting ready to prosecute Jesus before the governor. And we've got a feast that's going on in eight days. And some of our people are getting ready to observe the Passover tonight. Some did it last night. And we've got a whole week coming up. We don't have time to deal with you. Looks like you've got some issues. Verse 5. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he, Judas, departed and he went and hanged himself. He went and hanged himself. He committed suicide. Meanwhile, so at that moment, picture his body is hanging. He's, his soul and spirit has left his body. His soul and spirit is in hell. His body is on earth, hanging, swinging. But in all of that, in verse 6 and 7, it's going to take, no doubt, days for this to actually take place. But it's condensed for us in our reading. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver because he had thrown them, said, here's their conclusion, it is not lawful. Huh. They don't want to do anything unlawful. It is not lawful to put them, these 30 pieces of silver, into the treasury. Those can't be put into the treasury. They were taken from the treasury, but they can't be put back into the treasury. Why? Since it is blood money. It's not lawful to put that back into the treasury. Can't do it. So they took counsel. We need another meeting. I thought we just had a meeting. Did we have a meeting all night? Did we have another one early in the morning? Well, we're going to have to have another meeting because we need to know what to do with this money. And I don't know that this took place on Friday or when it took place, but at some point they come to this conclusion, verse 7. So they took counsel and brought with them and bought with them the 30 pieces of silver, the potter's field. I don't know if this field was owned by a potter or is this a field that potters would go to to collect their clay, to make their vessels. But it's called the potter's field. Why do they buy it? As a burial place for strangers. So Jerusalem would have people. This is a Gentile or this is a person visiting. And we don't know who they are. And we don't have a place to bury them. They don't have a burial plot. need to be buried somewhere. And so they probably run out of places in other fields. And so now, you know what we can do with this money? We can use this to buy another field to bury the strangers in. We'll make good use of this. Verse 8. Matthew, some 30 to 35 years later, writing in the 60s A.D., talking about what had happened back in the 30s, gives us a little insight of how that word had spread of what happened with that money. Verse 8, therefore, Matthew says, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. To the day that he was talking about when he wrote this in the 60s, he's saying that word spread that that field was bought with blood money. And no doubt people knew that was that Jesus, the Messiah, who's kicked off this whole thing that's now called Christianity. And that was the one that was his betrayer. And he took his money and threw it back. And they took that money and they bought that field. Oh, yeah, over there's the field of blood. That cemetery over there, probably full by now, some 30-some years later. In verse 9, Matthew then writes, Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took, so here's, Matthew referring to Jeremiah and said they took the 30 pieces of silver 
the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them the piece of silver for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So in all of this, Matthew sees another fulfillment of prophecy. So we've got 10 verses. We know that verse 1 and 2 is kind of separate. Verses 3 through 10 is separate in its own story with layers within it. So would you notice number 1? Let's talk briefly about verse 1 and 2 because we're going to come back to it in the next week or two, Lord willing. So we'll just kind of introduce it this morning. Number 1, phase 3. Of Jesus's Jewish trial. This is phase three of Jesus's Jewish trial. Verse one, when morning came, all the chief priests and, and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. So guys, I'm getting ready to insert my opinion. It's not a big thing either way. I'm going to give you my opinion. It seems like the Sanhedrin had met at Caiaphas's house in the night. That trial is finished. And as soon as they can in the morning, I think there are hints in the gospel that they actually relocate from Caiaphas' house, his palace, over to the temple. Notice that verses 3 through 10, that all happens, that, that verses 3 really through 5, that takes place down at the temple. And so it seems like the chief priests have moved over there. And so I'm going to contend this and the wording what allows here, and in Mark chapter 15, verse number 1, it seems like they have broken from there and they've reassembled at daybreak in their official chamber down at the temple for at least three reasons. If you're taking notes, let's write these down. So the gospels hint that the Jewish council has reassembled at the temple on that Friday morning for at least three reasons. Number one, the illegal trial at night needed to be legitimized during the daytime. So in other words, yes, we did our main work at night, but that's unofficial. That was illegal and they know it. And so that now they need to reconvene over in their official chambers. It's as though they're saying, okay, that was illegal. Now let's go legitimize it this morning. And this time, guys, we're going to do it by the book so that anyone who questions, they will know that we did it the right way. And we're going to go through the same type procedures but there's a big difference, right? What do they not need this time that they tried to use last time? They don't need false witnesses. Remember that from three weeks ago, those, those of you that were here. They don't need all of them coming in and, and co with conflicting reports. This time, they have the Sanhedrin themselves, those who heard Jesus answer the question when Caiaphas said, I adjure thee, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And he said, I am. You have said, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory. You will see me seated at the right hand of the Father. So he goes beyond just his question, and he claims to be the Christ and the Son of God. And so they, they in their minds, have him pinned for blasphemy. So reason number one, we've got to now legitimize this illegal night trial and do it right this time for the public appearance. Number two, again, I'm going to offer my opinion. This is an opinion here. Perhaps they reconvened because some members of the Sanhedrin were absent during the night. And they're going to surely, if they're absent, they're going to have questions, especially if they have anything in them that looked favorably upon Jesus. And you may be thinking, did any of the Pharisees and, and the chief priests have any good thoughts toward Jesus? I'm having you write this, okay? So potentially some members of the Sanhedrin would not have been present in the night. If so... Maybe they couldn't get a hold of them. Maybe they couldn't make it immediately. Or maybe they were not invited to that phase. But they are invited to the morning because, hey, we need to do this one above board. 
If that latter is the case, I want to propose to you, as many others have, that the ones who would have been uninvited would have included guys like Nicodemus, who Jesus, uh, who, who John refers to, or Jesus referred to as the teacher among the Jews, but Jewish records have stricken Nicodemus. Apparently, he became a Christian. He would have been on the, a member of the Sanhedrin. Maybe he wasn't even invited because who needs his input? We want to get this man killed tomorrow, and we don't need Nicodemus obstructing. Another one might have been this man named Gamaliel, who was a great teacher of the law and a very fair-minded man. Maybe Gamaliel's not invited, and pretty sure Joseph of Arimathea would not have been invited because he's going to be the one who's going to ask for the body of the Lord. Now quickly look at verse 2 because we went to the third reason why they needed to convene. And we'll be done with our first point. Look at verse 2. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Why do we need to meet again? We've already done it. We've already found him guilty. Reason one, we've got to do it right this time. Number two, we've got to get everybody there this time. We don't want anybody to be upset so we can at least get them. And they'll hear what he said. And we find him guilty. And even if they don't believe it is, they won't have enough votes to overthrow the majority. But number three, here's key. The Roman Empire was in charge over Israel, and they had not given the nation of Israel, the Jews, the power of capital punishment. They did not have the power to execute a death sentence. They can come up with a death sentence verdict, but they can't carry it out, and that's what they want. They want this to be carried out. They don't have the power. There's one thing that a person could do that the Jews could kill someone, and the Romans would say, okay, we'll let you do that, that on that one thing. And that's if a Gentile like us were to go into a certain part of the temple that was unallowed, then the Jews were allowed to have capital punishment. But anything other than that, the Romans had to okay it. So here's the Sanhedrin. They want Jesus to be killed, but they don't have the authority. So they know they need to go to Pilate. But here's the problem. Pilate is not going to care about a religious charge of blasphemy. If Pilate were to hear that, they come in here, this man has blasphemed our God, and we believe he should be put to death, and we want you to do it. Pilate, and you'll find this even out, he's going to say, get out of here with that. I don't care about your religious stuff. You do that and punish him however you think. You just can't kill him. But they want him dead. So what do they need to do? At morning, this gives them time to develop a different strategy where they can introduce three political charges. So they're going to actually end up accusing the Lord Jesus of political charges, not the ones that they in their heart want him to die for. And this gives them that opportunity. So there's a lot of teaching in point number one. That's kind of what's going on, and we'll pick back up on that in the coming text in the next few days. Number two, let's skip now to verse 3 through 10 because this will have most of our attention this morning. Number two, Judas has a change of mind. Judas has a change of mind. Verse number three, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said to, to him, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And he ends up throwing the pieces of silver into the temple. So Judas is going to have a, have a change of mind. Guys, listen. Here's another hint. Now, we know who Jesus is. We know he's completely innocent. But even as far as an earthly trial, this is major evidence that the Lord lived a perfectly sinless, innocent life because, as J.C. Ryle writes the following, get it. He says, if there was any living witness who could give evidence against our Lord Jesus Christ, again, if there's anyone that could do it, Judas Iscariot was the man. 
A, why? Why Judas Iscariot? Because he and 11 other men, the following is true. Ryle writes, a constant companion in all his journeyings, a hearer of all his teachings, both in public and private. He must have known well if our Lord had done any wrong, either in word or deed. If you're taking notes, write this down. Yet, the worst the Jews can come up with against Christ, the worst they can find is that this man claims to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the worst they can do. You say, Jeff, man, in that culture, that's pretty bad to claim to be the Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of God. It would be for anyone else. Here's the problem. He really is the Christ. Jesus is the one and only Christ. He is the one and only Son of God by nature. And so... Ultimately, what we're going to find in the coming days is Jesus is going to die for being who he is. This is the worst they can find. He claims, he acknowledged, he answered yes to the question, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Quickly look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. There's a phrase. In other translations, it's translated slightly different. When When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. That phrase, he changed his mind, he had remorse. Quickly. Don't raise your hand, but is anyone here, like within the last 24 hours, don't raise your hand, have you said or done something you wish you could take back? The last 24 hours, last 36 hours, last 72 hours, that's me, don't raise your hand, yeah. You've done something, said something, like, wish I hadn't have done that. Take that feeling, the last time you felt it, and multiply it times 100, and this is what Judas is going through. We've all been there, but I don't know that we've ever been here. I have never been at the point this man. I'm going to tell you guys, I struggle to relate with this text. I try to tell you that every now and then. Sometimes it's like, man, it just jumps alive at me. It's like, man, there's too much to even think about preaching here. And then some weeks I read it over and over and I don't feel like I'm just, like I'm not attaching to what he's going through that brings him to do what he does down in verse number five. But this man is extremely remorseful. He has done something he greatly regrets. So again, here's what I don't know. Was he down in the courtyard listening to what was taking place? Is he up there actually watching all these false witnesses? But ultimately, he has this change of heart. He realizes they've condemned Jesus to death. He's being sent over the pilot. And if they have their way, Jesus will die that day. And I don't know why. I feel like saying, this is what you signed up for, buddy. Isn't this what you wanted? But something has changed within him. And this is not what he wants. It's as though he comes to the chief priests and the elders and says, hold on, whoa, wait. Can't you see? They're lying. You know all their messages are contradicting. You guys are breaking all kind of laws. You know he's innocent. You can't be doing it. Look, here's the money back. This is how my, a man that loves money so much that he steals money from the Lord and the other disciples because he was the money keeper. This man loves money. He is now giving money. Why? He's wanting the Lord to be released, apparently. He has had a, a change of his mind. Can't you see he's innocent? But I feel like if I could go back in time and say, hey, what? listen, Judas, do you honestly think by giving your money back and saying you're really sorry for what you've done, that these bloodthirsty men are going to acknowledge their deceptiveness? Do you think they're really going to release the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you think your 30 pieces of silver that are the equivalent of a few thousand dollars is going to move the needle for them? Now look again, verse, look at verse 4 
At the end, they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. I don't think that phrase, what is that to us, is talking about his 30 pieces of silver. It's talking about his guilty conscience. They're not saying, but look, here's the 30 pieces of silver. What is that to us? It's not said for that, but listen, it would, it, it would be proper to attach that to it. Does anybody remember about how many, uh, they've estimated how many Jews were, would go to the Passover? Does anybody remember? It was a something and a half number. Anybody? Two and a half million Jews. And they're bringing offerings. Here's my point. Hundreds of millions of dollars worth of money is going to be going through the hands of the religious hierarchy that week. And here comes a man bringing back a few thousand dollars, between three and twelve thousand dollars. That doesn't move the needle. What is that to us? But I have this guilty feeling. I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? Dude, sounds like you've got major issues. That is your problem. That is not ours. You need to go deal with it. We can't help you. And they send him away. What is that to us? Here's the bottom line. We got what we want. Thanks for the help. But here's the money. Trust me. We don't want your money. We don't need your money. And he's going to end up forcing them to take the money. So again... Here's a man, just before we go to the third point this morning, here's a man who loves money, who is under such remorse that he's ready to return it, and when they refuse it, he insists anyway. I want you to look quickly at verse 5, because there's a word, you see it in English, it's real simple, we know what it's talking about, but I want to be clear on what it is. Verse 5, and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple. You see the word for temple. Again, I'm not a Greek expert, but those who are have pointed out multiple the word that Matthew uses for temple is, everybody listening? It is not the temple complex. He didn't throw the 30 piece of silver in the temple complex. It's actually the word that is used for the sanctuary, for the building of the temple itself, the building proper. So let's use our hands, right? Use your imagination. From your perspective, I want you to picture a map of the temple complex. So there's these courtyards all around. Over on this section, over on the west side for you, is the, the tall building of the temple with the holy place, and behind that, the holy of holies. But all around this are courtyards that we Gentiles could come so far. But then there's going to be a barrier with openings and signs that if Gentiles go beyond that, then you're going to lose your life. Judas is under such remorse. He has this money. He's going to go past that section into where Gentiles can't go. He's going to go around the east end. He's going to go over to the east end through the eastern gate into about a courtyard that's called the courtyard of the women. It doesn't mean only women could go there. It means the Jewish women could not go further than this. So he's going to go around into the eastern gate into the real proper temple. Now, all that's the courtyards, but now it's going into a 70-yard by 70-yard courtyard. He's going to go into that, through that, into now this courtyard of the Israelites where the women couldn't go, only Jewish men. But it is smaller, and then he's going to hit a barrier ultimately that on the other side of that, only the priest could go, and he's not a priest. And he's going to go as far as he can Perhaps this is where some more of this conversation, please, I want you to have it. I don't want it attached to me. They will not take it. 
And he ends up throwing it from this barrier at the temple and maybe even has some of it make its way into the temple. Past the wash basin, past the altar where they burned animal sacrifices, throwing it at them. Does he go? I don't know. Does he take a whole bag and just sling it and it goes strowing everywhere? Does he take handfuls of it and throw it? Or does he take piece by piece, just one after? This has to be the most embarrassing thing in the middle of a feast week. You have all these Jewish men, some early risers. I'm going down to the temple and I'm going to pray early. And there's this man shouting and screaming at the priest. And you've got these lower level Levites wondering what is going on. With what he's done. Number three. Judas, his death fulfilled prophecies. So I'm going to come back to verse 5 in a little bit. But for now, let's kind of focus on verses 6 through 10. Judas's death ends up fulfilling prophecies. Notice verse 6. So he throws the money in the temple, but the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. Now real quick. Some have proposed, is this an admission by the chief priests that they know that what they've done is wrong? They called it blood money. I personally don't think this is an admission. I think it's just a matter of fact. This money was taken from the treasury, and it was used to buy a man's help to cause another man to get a guilty sentence, get captured, get a guilty sentence, and his blood is going to be shed. He will be executed, and so it is blood money. For that reason, because it was used for that, it cannot go back into the treasury. I don't think they're feeling any remorse. I think they're just matter of fact. In their mind, this is a justifiable means to use this money for a righteous end, and in their mind, the righteous end is putting to death this man, Jesus of Nazareth. So I don't think this is an admission of guilt. Some have said, just by calling it blood money, they're condemning themselves by acknowledging that it was wrong use of the money. Not in their mind. This is what you have to do to do business sometimes. Sometimes you've got to spend money to get what you want. We kind of did this thing under the table. It's going to end up being known by the public. So I don't think it's an admission. So where do they get off this phrase? It is not lawful. Uh-oh, this guy has left. He's forced. We didn't want the money. Now we've got to make decisions about the money. But it's not lawful to put the money back into the treasury. Where does that come from? If you're taking notes, write this down. It appears, and this is the best we have, Deuteronomy, this is out of the law of God, the law given to Moses. Deuteronomy 23, verse number 18, taught that money was tainted as an offering to God. You can't offer to God money that's been tainted because it was earned by sinful practices. The sinful practices that are marked out in the book of Deuteronomy is prostitution. And it also talks about dogs, which apparently is talking about male prostitutes. So here's all that means. And they've taken that concept and they've applied it like, for that reason, uh, we don't accept offerings to God. Could you picture this? Aren't you the prostitute that stands down on the corner? Yes. What are you doing with that money? I make a lot of money. But it's okay. I give big offerings to God. No, you can't do that. You don't take money that is corrupted by how you earned it and give that to the Lord. And so that's where apparently they get this idea that this money is corrupt. It's been tainted. We can't offer to God 
blood money. We can't just put it back into circulation. But here's the problem. I've already alluded to it. Look again at verse 6. But the chief priest, taking the piece of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. It's not lawful. Does that irritate you guys? I wish you had time to read it 30 times this week, like, like this coming week, like I did last week. That just burns me. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are we going to do with it? Why not? We can't do. Why not? We can't put it into the treasury. Why not? It's blood money. That'd be unlawful. Suddenly you guys care about what is lawful. You broke over a dozen laws of God and laws of the rabbis and the judicial laws of the Sanhedrin. You guys have laws. Some of them are written in the Bible and others are not. But put them all together. You guys intentionally, knowingly broke over a dozen of them in the last few hours. And now you're worried about not breaking the laws of God. That irritates me. Hypocrites. You, oh, you, you're so blind. Until I pause and I realize I'm going to use a big word. Every one of us do something similar. You're like, what? What is that? All of us, if you check your heart, you say, well, what, what area is it? I don't know. Check your heart. We are really good at compartmentalizing certain things and putting them into categories of good, bad, worse, worst. We're really good at that. We will acknowledge sometimes that some things that we're doing, that's not good. But we'll see something else in someone else, and that's bad. And we'll see someone else doing a lot of that thing. That's worse. And then we'll see someone else who does all that and a few other things. That is the worst. Now, I have my things. But here's the crazy thing. We just make these categories up on our own. We don't have any biblical grounds for doing this. Talking to a couple of guys Friday. Three guys Friday. We were talking about how little you hear preaching on gluttony. And so our fourth point this... No, I'm kidding. Where did I? <laughs> do we do that? I do that. We're usually really strict on other people's categories, and we're really soft on ours. We can't do this. That'd be breaking... Didn't you guys just like shatter the law all night long? Suddenly you care about the law of God? You're hypocrites. We are very hypocritical often. Let me ask you right now. Everybody listen. Is there anything in your life... That you are fiery and zealous about in somebody else. Man, it ticks you off that, there were, it, that, that they do those things in their life. But if you were to look at your own life, you'd say, man, in somebody else's world, what I'm doing is really bad. And I can't have, find biblical grounds to make out what's the grade. I've just arbitrarily been easy on myself. What are those areas? May God help us at Graceview to learn more and more to begin to see things the way he sees them. That's what we need. We'll be much more gracious when we do that. So what do they do? Look at verse 7. So they took counsel. We can't put it in the treasury. So they took counsel. And let's just go ahead and say it. They end up finding a way to feel not just good. They feel doubly good. Doubly good. Why? We didn't put the money back into the treasury. We've got to do something with it. I can't take it home. That wouldn't be right. And you can't take it home. That wouldn't be right. We might get God mad at us. We can't put it back in the treasury. Might get God mad at us. So what are we going to do? 
guess what? We have this nice charitable thing. There's this need. And so they buy, and there no doubt is a need. And so they buy a field. And so people who don't have a place to be buried can be buried in. And no doubt it starts filling up very quickly. Look again at verse 5. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Verse 7 says, so they took counsel and they bought with them, that's 30 pieces of silver, they bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Hold your spot here. And by the way, look quickly at verse 8. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day, Matthew writes. Go if you would. This is the only other place we'll go this morning, I believe. Acts chapter 1. Flip over to Acts chapter 1. This is the only other person in the New Testament who really writes anything about the death of Judas. And it's not in the detail that, that Matthew gives, but it does give a little light. Okay? So Mark, Luke, and John did not write about what Judas did. But Luke, in, his God, in, in, the, in the book of Acts, historical book of Acts, he ends up writing about it briefly. So here's the scene. We're going to start in verse 15. Everybody there? Acts chapter 1. This is 40-some days later than what we're studying in Matthew. So Matthew 27, we're on Good Friday. The Lord will die that day. 40-something days later, not quite 50. We know it's not the 40th day. The Lord ascended on the 40th day. The Holy Spirit will descend on the 50th day. Somewhere in there, this scene happens in what's called this upper room. Verse 15, isn't this interesting? In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. Peter is in a role of leadership. He's the one who's talking. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. Luke, the historian, writes for us, the company of persons in that upper room was in all about 120. So picture about 120 in a big room. Peter stands up somewhere between the 40th day and the 50th day, and he says, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, what he just said was a thousand years before it happened, the Holy Spirit already had it written using David. What was going to happen to Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he, Judas, was numbered among us, the twelve, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now Luke jumps in in verse number 18 and says, Now this man, talking about Judas, watch, watch Luke's wording. This man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Talking about the money. He acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. That's what Luke says. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that the field was called in their language, their own language, a keldama. That is, field of blood. Do you see what he just did? So here we got this little bit of a dilemma. We have Matthew says this is what happened. Luke says this is what happened. Matthew says that Judas went out and hanged himself. Luke says that, that, I'm sorry, Judas hanged himself. And then Luke says that Judas fell headlong. And when he landed, his, his body burst and his bowels gushed out. So which is it? Matthew says the chief priest bought this field of blood with Judas's money. And then Luke says that Judas bought the field. So which is it? Again, if you're taking notes, write this thought down. Acts chapter 1, verses 15 to 19, obviously is not a contradiction of Matthew's account. It is complementing Matthew's account. So after you write that, I'm going to very briefly touch on what I think happened. Put the two together, and you have what happened to Judas. And this was a fulfillment of prophecies. Once you've written that, let's put the two passages together. So here's what I believe 
Again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna supply a little bit. Some of these are definite facts, but I'm gonna supply a little bit. Here we go, you ready? Judas goes, he feels remorseful. He offers the money back. He wants Jesus to be released, he's rejected. They won't even take the money, so he ends up throwing it into the temple, right toward the very sanctuary itself, and maybe even getting some of the money that far. I don't know how far it was, and I don't know how far he could throw. But he's that remorseful. He goes out and he hangs himself. Could it be that he hangs himself, apparently he did, over some type of cliff? I've seen a picture in one of my books on Acts that has a big, that, that cliff looks to be probably 70 to 80 feet tall from the, the faraway picture. That it is thought and below there is the field of Akaldama, the field of blood. And so Judas hangs himself. Now watch. Is he in a spot where people don't really notice him at first? Or do people notice him, but because it's a feast week, no one wants to go touch a dead body and to defile themselves, so they just leave him hanging there a while, more days. We're at the beginning of the feast. This feast is eight days, and nobody, let's let's just let it be. It's it's unsightly, and I hate people have to see this, but just kind of work around it, and we'll deal with it when it's over. Maybe that's what's happening. But the flies are starting to swarm. And in fact, if you were to read the ESV note at the bottom of your Acts passage, you notice the word swelling. So his body is starting to swell. But apparently, the rope or the branch that he's hanging on just can't take it anymore. And eventually, it gives way. And there, do you picture his body? Picture this body hanging, and it's getting lower and lower as the days go by. And his body's swelling up more and more, and the flies are swarming. And eventually, the rope or the branch can't hold his weight anymore. And it falls. Picture it. As he falls... His, dead, his soul and spirit is in hell, but his dead body is falling. And when it hits, it just bursts like a hefty bag full of vegetable soup. And his bowels literally. So he must have landed this way so that he burst open and literally his guts just come falling out. And that's what happened to the man that betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. Back to Matthew chapter 27. One last thought here, because we want to be honest with the text, right? There's a big debate. Those of you who have a reference Bible or a little Bible that makes notations about prophecies, would you look at verse number 9? Watch what Matthew writes. Something interesting here. I'm not going to belabor it. Verse 9 says, Matthew writes about this whole scene. It's our third point. Judas's death fulfilled prophecies because Matthew writes, then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver and the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them the piece of silver for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So those of you who have the little letter that tells you down at the bottom to go look or over to the side, what exact chapter in Jeremiah is that prophecy found? What are some of you look, what are some of you finding? What are others of you finding? I'm still looking for another group. Starts with a Z. Ah. What are you finding? Zechariah chapter 11 verse 13. Some people, and again, I'm not going to belabor this, some people have criticized the Bible saying it has inaccuracies, it has discrepancies. It has just total errors in it. Case in point. Matthew says that Jeremiah made this prophecy. If you were to go look that up in Jeremiah 32 or whatever you guys were calling out, you're not going to find this wording. 
what's there in verse number 9 and 10, what he says, hey, this happened and this was a fulfillment of this over in Jeremiah. It's not going to match. Much more closely what's going to match is this Zechariah 11, verse 13, 12 and 13, that section. So what's going on? I guess Matthew blew it. Matthew didn't know. So that's floating out there, and there's a big debate. All right, now, no, I'm just kidding. We are going to offer some possible solutions. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I am not about to say that this or this one is the solution to this dilemma. It is a dilemma. But I've also learned this. Whenever we find things in the Bible that seems to be a discrepancy or an error, just keep giving it time, and it's almost as though give it a few years or decades or even centuries, and archaeology will end up finding something that correlates exactly what the Bible teaches. So I'm going to offer you three possible solutions. I'm not saying any one of them is, any two of them. It may not even be one of these. There are people who have studied this so much, and they bore their congregations way more than I'm about to do you. They give like 12 or 14 different possible solutions. I'm not going to do that. Possible number one, scenario number one. Could it be that Jeremiah said this at one point, but it's not actually written down until later by Zechariah? So it's very possible Jeremiah says this orally. He gives this whole scene. Zechariah ends up writing it down, and so Matthew gives credit to, you say, has that ever happened in Scripture? Yes. Jesus never wrote a single book, handwritten, but we have all these sayings by the gospel writers. In fact, even Luke in the book of Acts, chapter 23, where it, it is said, the words when Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You won't find it is more blessed to give than to receive in the gospels. You will find it in the book of Acts. Don't have time to go there. Jude, verses 14 and 15, gives a quote. Jude, near the end of the first century, is going to give a quote from Enoch, way back at the beginning of creation. Thousands of years before. Thousands of years. Enoch said something, and Jude is writing it down. So could it be Jeremiah said it, and Zechariah ends up incorporating it into his prophecy, and Matthew knows the truth. That's possibility number one. Here's possibility number two. This one's maybe less likely, but I'll throw it out. Remember in the Old Testament, there's these three categories in the, Jew, in the Jewish mind. There's the law, and then there's the prophets and the writings. They have the law and the prophets and the writings. Some rabbis would start this section called the prophets. Some had an arrangement where Jeremiah was the first prophet listed in the prophets. And so it could be that Matthew is saying... In that section that is kicked off by Jeremiah, in other words, what he's saying, as it's told in the prophets, just code word Jeremiah signifying the whole category, this and this happens. That, there is precedent for that. In the Bible, sometimes people in the New Testament would refer to, they would call it the Psalms say something because the Psalms kicks off in their arrangement the whole section called the writings, but the quote doesn't come from the Psalms. It comes from one of the other books, but they say Psalms because it represents that whole category. Sorry for that confusion. I did have to throw it out. And then there's the third possibility, and this one is maybe the strongest. What's happening here in verse 9 and 10, and the only reason I'm touching this is because I am very defensive about the inspiration and the authority of the Bible, and I'm not just going to yield this to anybody. I'm saying we don't have all the information, and there are potential ways that this could be understood. And so here's a third one. If you were to look back at Jeremiah 19, 1 through 13, there are elements in there that coupled with Zechariah 13, 
I'm sorry, Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. Put those together, and you really have a rounded out version of what this prophecy ends up being. And so here Matthew writes that, and knowing that Jeremiah is much more prominent and well-known than Zechariah, even though most of it is in Zechariah's prophecy, Matthew names Jeremiah as the lead one that he is quoting. Needed to hit that. Sorry. Number four this morning. Now to our text. So you've had all that on the front side, and now we get to the main point this morning. Time-wise, I have preached through two-thirds of my message, but the emphasis of today's text is this fourth point, obviously. And we're going to deal with verse 5. Would you look at verse 5? And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he, Judas, departed, and he went and hanged himself. Notice with me this morning, remorse is not necessarily repentance. I need everybody to understand that this morning. Remorse. Remorse is necessary. Remorse is a good thing when it is called for. Sorrow for sin. Peter denied the Lord and he went out and wept bitterly. Judas betrayed the Lord and he's had a change of his mind. And so there is, listen, an incomplete level of repentance that takes place. It is an incomplete level that takes place. Do you remember a few minutes ago when we read the text that I said Matthew is the only one who gives us verses 3 through 10? The other gospel writers do not do it in their gospels. As you look at that on your page, maybe your page falls out like mine. I don't know. I'm starting chapter 27 right here. Literally, I'm looking at Peter denies Jesus, and then right across the page, I see Judas hangs himself with two little verses that keep us on track for the big picture. It's as though, guys, that Matthew puts... Peter's sin and sorrow and response right beside Judas's sin and sorrow and response. He ends up putting them side by side so that all of his readers would make the natural step. I don't, did you guys just automatically do this? I dare say if you had a hundred preachers preach through the book of Matthew expositionally picking up where they left off, we are, I can't imagine, I, I, I want to talk to the guy who doesn't do it. 99 out of 100 are going to come back and say, look, we have to now put Peter's response and Judas's response side by side. What are the differences? Because what ends up happening in their life on earth and in their eternity is extremely different. Both had these major sins. If you take a note, write this down. After their sin, so Matthew is clearly guiding us to compare the two. After their sin, here's what happened. Please be putting this in your mind. Feel it. After their sin, Peter was forgiven. Peter was restored. Peter ends up being used mightily to advance the kingdom of Christ. Hear those words again. He's forgiven. He's restored. He's used by God. Judas commits his sin. He also has remorse. Judas ends up unforgiven. Judas has a very disgraceful death, which leads immediately to his soul and spirit going into hell where he's been for the last 2,000 years. This is a real person. Judas has been in hell for 2,000 years. So what is the difference? we got to find out why did this one do that and why did this one do that because very different final results. So what's the difference? Can we pause right here? Grace, if you listen to me. Those of you online, Watch. The difference is not in the degree of their sin. Please don't think, well, hey, 
This guy betrayed the Lord, and all this guy did was say, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not one of his disciples. And God is my witness. I swear I'm not one of his disciples. And may God strike me dead and damn me to hell if I'm one of his disciples. That's all that guy did. You're like, what? This is horrible what happened. Yeah, but this guy betrayed the Lord. Or maybe our mind goes here. Yeah, but Jeff, hang on. Judas's was premeditated. He kind of initiated that meeting for the, for the money. Peter got caught up in a moment of weakness. So that's the difference why what one, ha- what one does and the other one does. Guys, that is not the difference. That is not the difference. Here's what we have. We have two men, just like everybody here, who sinned and have to work and work through the ramifications of their sin. One man felt such great sorrow, he went out and wept bitterly until he's encountered a few days later by the resurrected Christ. The other man feels such great sorrow, he tries to give the money back when it's rejected. He throws the money out. He goes out and hangs himself and commits suicide. Now think through that. For a person to even truly, I mean truly, entertain thoughts, I'm going to kill myself, and then to follow through with that and carry that out. This is a person that is under such emotional strain and stress. I mean, it is off the chain. I've never been to this point. I have never. Some of you have. Some of you have loved ones that have been to that. I have loved ones that have been to that point and have carried it out. We're talking about a person that is under immense emotional stress and strain. I saw this week and I saw it in, a, in an older commentary, probably a 20-year-old commentary, so I pulled up the new stats. Do y'all know that on a given year, not, not the same every year, on a given year, suicide is one of the top 10 killers of Americans? Let that sink in. People don't need to committing, be committing homicide and murder, right? We don't need to be doing that, but more than twice as many people on a yearly basis kill themselves than kill someone else. So think that through. MacArthur ends up citing some research, and here's what they found. He didn't go through them all. He listed like five. I'm going to throw out three. What are some of the main reasons people end up committing suicide? Here's what research shows. Some people do it for retaliation. Often this is young people. They want to retaliate often against a parent. They don't like what's happened, and they think the best way to get the parent. And you say, would anybody seriously? Yes, this really happens. People retaliate by committing suicide. A second one, man, I didn't think of it, but as I read it, I thought, man, I can understand that. Reunion. Often it's older folks who've lived with a, with a husband or wife so long, and the husband, the spouse dies, and they get so lonely, they're just sick of life, they can't handle it anymore, and their best solution is, I'm just going to kill myself so I can go be where my loved one is. They just miss them so much. Life has lost its purpose and meaning, and so they, for reunion's sake, He mentioned some do because of all the new age teaching and the Eastern religions actually believe there's this rebirth. This life is so bad, I just want to escape this one. I want to go be reborn into another life. So there's rebirth. But the fourth one I'm going to name is what we're talking about here. He calls it self-retribution. Self-retribution is when a person is so aware of what they've done, they are so convicted, guilt and shame and regret that they as judge and jury pronounce a sentence on themselves and they are the executioners as well and they go take their own life as a form of retribution. I am such a bad person. I have such guilt. So here's what it boils down to. I just want relief. I just want relief from what I have done. So here's a man who wept bitterly, who no doubt wants relief. 
And he ends up encountering Christ. This other man is feeling this massive weight of shame and guilt, and he wants relief. And his answer is to break God's law and commit murder by murdering himself. So what is the difference between the two? Let's quickly take some notes along this line. Judas is among those who we would obviously say exhibited incomplete repentance. The Bible gives multiple examples of incomplete repentance, far too many that I would have time to talk about this morning. So I'm going to give you three examples of incomplete repentance. Let's put the first two together. You'll remember them. Cain. Cain and Pharaoh. Cain and Pharaoh are examples of people who have incomplete repentance. Here's why. They end up sorrowful, but they're not sorrowful for their action of sin. They're sorrowful for the consequences of their sin. I challenge you to go back and read Genesis chapter 4, and you'll find the first man that is born of a woman, the first man born of a woman, Adam and Eve have Cain. They have another son, Abel, and Abel was righteous and offered righteous offerings to the Lord. Cain was not righteous, and his offerings were not acceptable to the Lord. He offered fruits and vegetables, and Abel offered from his flocks animal sacrifices. Cain becomes jealous of his brother, kills him out in the field. God, let it sink in. God comes along. I'm I'm putting it all together quickly. Paraphrasing. God comes to Cain and says, where's your brother? His response is, how do I know? I don't keep up with my brother. Am I my brother's keeper? Here's the, I don't know where he's at. Am I his keeper? Am I responsible for him? Knowing full well that he killed his brother and his brother's dead body's lying out in the field. And God knows this. And he is, has no qualms about it. He has no sorrow about it until the Lord says, because of your sin and your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, I have to do something about it. So you are going to be, you're not going to be a settled man. You're going to be a fugitive and a vagabond. And here you're a farmer and the land, even after the curse has kind of produced for you and you're really good at doing what you do, all of a sudden the land, wherever you plant and try to cultivate, it is not going to produce for you. And you're going to be a vagabond and traveling the rest of your life. Then all of a sudden, Cain feels great sorrow and regret and tells God, your punishment is more than I can bear. Pharaoh, I don't have to tell as much. Pharaoh just straight straight up disobeys God. I'm not going to turn. I don't even believe in this God you say you're talking about Moses. I'm not turning those people. You're supposed God's people are my slaves, and I'm not turning them loose. And he keeps having this stiff-necked attitude, and then God sends plague after plague, after plague, and then eventually it gets so devastating, Pharaoh comes and runs to to Moses and asks Moses to call God off, and God will stop the plague because he feels regret and remorse for the consequences of his sin. And then he goes right back to his old ways, and then God sends another plague, and then he's sorry for his sin, for the consequences. That's Cain. That's Pharaoh. The second one, third one that we'll mention, second category, now this man also... He's not sorry. He's not truly sorry for his sin, but he's even further than the first two. King Saul, if you ever read 1 Samuel 15 and even back before that, King Saul represents people who blame other people for their sin. Have you ever met some? Are y'all listening? Have you ever met someone who blames everybody else or somebody else for their sins? Well, this is Saul. Saul, oh, he's going to end up sorry He's going to end up sorry because the kingdom of Israel is going to be taken away from him. Hey, do y'all remember his two great sins? You remember the two that cost him his kingdom? There was a point where he, as a Benjamite, 
He's not a Levite. They're getting ready to go to battle. He ends up offering sacrifices to God. He said, that should be a good thing, right? Oh, no, no. When Samuel, the prophet, shows up, he rebukes Saul, the king, and he tells him, the kingdom is going to be taken from you because God is angry for what you've done. You've offered these animal sacrifices to God, and it wasn't your place. Do you remember what Saul did? He starts saying, yeah, but all the Philistines are out there, and they're like the sand on the sea, and all my soldiers, my Jewish soldiers, were getting scared, and they're running. And oh, by the way, Samuel, you were supposed to be here on the seventh day. Today's the seventh day, and you were late. But today is the seventh day, and I am now here. You should not have started offering sacrifices. You were out of line. Do you see how he shifted the blame? It's your fault, Samuel, for being late. I had to offer. We can't go into battle without offering sacrifices to God. The second time, Samuel the prophet comes to tell Saul the king, God, after 400 years, has the Amalekites on his mind. There's a city of the Amalekites, and God is going to give you the victory, Saul. You as the king and the general of the army, you're supposed to go in and destroy all the Amalekites. I mean, all the men, all the women, all the children, all the infant babies, all their donkeys and camels and, and, and lambs and, and, and goats and cows and oxen, you, everything, kill everything in there. Off they go. God gives the victory. Saul comes back feeling great. King Saul feels great about the victory. Here comes Samuel up. He's ticked off. Saul starts saying how great it was. God gave the victory and how wonderful it was. Then the prophet Samuel's like, then what's this sound that I'm hearing? How come I'm hearing these, these sheep and cattle? And King Saul is like, oh, it's great. We found a lot of sheep and cattle. They're going to make great sacrifices to God. But you were told to destroy everything, all of them. Yeah, but they're going to make great sacrifice. Do you see what he's doing? It's not my fault. Ultimately, what Saul does, it's the people's fault. They saved the sheep and the cattle alive. It's not my fault, ladies and gentlemen. For us to have complete repentance before God, we have to say, God, this is what I've done. This is my fault. We can't cast blame on anyone else. We've got to own our own stuff. Now quickly, from Matthew, here's what we find. Write this down. Four things about Judas. Man, he was on a great track, wasn't he? Judas had some good qualities in dealing with his sin. Number one, he had some good qualities. He confessed what he did was sin. He just confessed. I'm in Matthew chapter 27, verse number four. I have sinned by betraying. I have sinned. He confesses what he did was sin. That is necessary. Number two, he's deeply remorseful. I mean, deeply remorseful. He's not like Saul. He's not like Pharaoh. He's not like Cain. This man is sorry for what he's done. Do you understand that? Well, you're not going to like hearing this. There are people in this room who, when they commit sin, they're not as sorry for their sin as Judas, who we talk about. Judas was more sorry for his sin than some people in this room are about their sin. So he's off to a good start. He confesses what he's... I mean, he actually says, I have sinned. He feels deeply remorseful. Number three, he actually confesses that Jesus is innocent. He's trying to project somewhat of a good picture about Jesus. Jesus is perfectly innocent. And if that's not enough, Judas goes all the way to... He actually tries to make restitution. Here, please take the money back. I don't want it. Get it away from me. I'll guarantee you if he had it and someone said, you're going to need to give that back and more, he would have given more. But he's trying to make restitution. All of this is on the road to repentance. But as our point is saying, ladies and gentlemen, remorse of itself is not necessarily 
repentance. You wrote that, I want you to write this one quickly. What Judas proves, and as you're writing this, I hope you'll take this internally. Judas proves that sorrow for sin, sorrow for sin, admission of wrong, and attempts at restoration, though all good things are not enough by themselves. Sorrow for sin. I mean, inwardly sorrowful for the sin. Acknowledging and admitting, I've done wrong. Calling it, I have sinned. Feeling it, saying it, and even trying to make restoration for what he has done. All of that together is still not enough in God's eyes. I want to ask you a question. We we talked about time travel before, right? Like, if you could, where would you go? This is the time period I I think I would like to go back to if I could time. I I, I wouldn't want to stay there. I like the day and age we live in with all of its problems. I like having a completed New Testament. I love having completed. I like having the Holy Spirit in me. Um, And I know I get saved in this version of life, so I like this version. I like this one. But if I could visit briefly, let me ask you. If you could go back to the, would you like to talk to Judas? Maybe you're like, I've never even thought about that. Can I ask you this? Would you like to talk to him if you could? Maybe you're thinking, I'd love to talk to that guy, give him a piece of my, I hate what he, I, I do too, I hate what he did. But I thought about this. I would like to talk to him for a different reason. And it's not that. I'm anything special, but I, I wish the Lord would use me. This, this is a real man. You understand? This is a real man, just like any one of us. This is a real person. I would like to go back in time, and if the Lord would allow me and use me, I would say, hey, I know what you're about to do. You're getting ready to make a fateful decision, but before you do that, can we talk? You say, what would you tell him? I would remind him of four things. Judas, you have an eternal soul and spirit. You're an eternal being. Number two, you're on your way to hell. Before you make this rash, faithful, regretful, eternally regretful decision, you need to remember you are an eternal being, and right now you're on your way to hell. Guys, I'm not being, ang- I'm not being mean here, and I'm also not being fanciful. I've heard something recently that confirmed, well, as far as humanly possible, has confirmed what I think all along. In this room right now, there are people with eternal souls and spirit, and it's going to have a version of a body that's going to be with them forever, that at this moment, they're on their way to hell, and they're in the room right now. This is among us. What we're talking about is serious. I'm going to go over. I'm going to finish this message in a flurry, in a very common way that I have many, many times, but we're going to cover it one more time today. Because in the room, there are people with eternal souls on their way to hell. You say, Jeff, what else would you tell him? Third thing, I would say, Judas, this is not going to make sense right now, but you don't have all the information. Here's what's going to happen. God, in his wisdom, power, and mercy, is going to use the death of Jesus that you're partly responsible for in a big way doesn't excuse you for what you've did. But God is going to use in his power and wisdom and mercy, he's going to use the death of Jesus. 
to make a way of salvation for all the people who ever lived. So God has a plan for this. And the last thing I would tell him, based on that, God really will forgive you, even after what you've done, if you will ask him. And if you will receive it, God will save you. That's what I would go back and tell him. You're an eternal being. You're on your way to hell. God's actually going to use this thing in only a way that only God can. And it's going to bring about salvation. But you have to ask for it and receive it. And you need to do that before you go jump off that cliff and hang on that rope and stop living in this life. You need to think about this. Because there's no going back once you've done it. And it's in the room this morning. A few weeks ago, I said that Judas, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he betrayed the Lord with a kiss, it's as though Jesus is the door to heaven. Judas kissed the door to heaven, but he missed it. Here again, I find that Judas, with all these good qualities we just wrote, he confessed his sin. He's deeply remorseful. He confesses good things about Jesus and even tries to make restitution. And yet, again, he's so close, but he missed heaven by eternity. He missed it by eternity, and he will never go to heaven. Why? Judas is remorseful for his sin, but he never seeks God's mercy. And there's a reason, because he's lacking the key thing. And you should already know what it is. You should already be saying, I know where Jeff's going. He's remorseful. He never asks for mercy. He confesses his sinfulness to the chief priest. He should have found Jesus. He said, Jesus, I sinned against you. I am sorry. They're not going to undo what I've done. But I beg you, please forgive me like the thief on the cross. But he doesn't do that. He took another route. Why? Because his desperation and desire for relief led him instead of to God, it led him to a place of hopelessness where he ends up taking his own life in unbelief. Write the last note down. Write this down. Godly repentance, which Judas did not have, Godly repentance always includes faith. Always includes faith. But it's not just any faith. Oh, yeah, I believe. I'm a believer. Again, there are people in this room right now. They're going to get two out of the three things that we've mentioned multiple times. If you're taking notes, we're going to hold off on putting it on the screen because I don't want you to run ahead. But if you're taking notes, I want you to start writing and filling in these categories. Here we go. Godly repentance always includes faith which understands the facts. Godly repentance always includes... I'm going to contend this morning that Judas did not have all the facts, and so that's why he did not have godly repentance with faith. Because part of faith is, I believe. I believe what? I believe these facts. Godly repentance knows and understands the facts. So check yourself right here. Number one, do you know you are a sinner, you've broken God's laws, and that's a big thing because God is so holy, he will not allow anyone with sin into heaven. He cannot tolerate sin. Number two, do you know the facts that God can't just like let your sin slide? He can't let you live in a good place over there while he lives in heaven over here with these people. He can't even let you be annihilated. God is just. He must, as the just judge of the universe, he has to punish sin. Your sin has to be punished. That's the facts. The third fact 
is the great news, the good news, the gospel. God loved you so much, even though he has to punish your sin, he sent his son to become a human being. He became an actual human being and yet remained God so that God could put your sin and my sin on Christ on the cross and God poured out his wrath on Jesus so that your sin is paid, which leads to the fourth fact that everybody who ends up getting saved and has godly repentance, they have faith that understands this fourth fact. Because of what Christ did, God can now give away salvation for free to anyone who will accept Jesus' death as counting for them. All people who have godly repentance, understand those four things. You may have never put it perfectly together. You may not even heard it broken like I just gave it. But you understand that. I've sinned. I'm in trouble. God met my need in Jesus. If I'll ask Jesus to save me, then God gives salvation for free, and I don't have to do anything. You all true Christians understand that. You say, then everybody saved it understands that. Oh, no, 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 no. That's one thing. Move your pen forward. Godly repentance always includes faith, which understands the facts. Next category. Godly repentance always includes faith, which agrees with God about their sin and Jesus. All saving faith ultimately comes to a place where they don't just, yeah, I understand the facts. They agree with God about their sin and about Jesus. Every person in this room who's ever been truly saved and come to a point of godly repentance, you have come to a point in your life where you've had a conversation with God and you've confessed, God, you, your word says I'm a sinner and I agree. I agree with you. But your word also says that you sent this man, Jesus is your son and his death on the cross is enough to pay for my sin. And I agree with that. I agree that I'm a sinner, and I agree that Jesus' death is sufficient to pay for all my sin. All true Christians come to a point where they understand the facts, and they agree with the facts with God. That's confession. You say, well, then we're saved. Still not saved. Many people, even in this room right now, know that and agree with God. You're right, God. He is that, and I am this. Still not saved. Can we have our note on the, on the screen? Godly repentance always includes faith, which understands the facts, agrees with God about their sin and Jesus, and ultimately trusts God's promises about Christ. You have to come to that point where you trust. A lot of people are informed about the facts. A lot of people agree with God about the facts, but they're still not saved. This is that line of demarcation. Between so many people, there are so many people in Anderson County, they go two out of three here, but they're going to die and go to hell because they don't have trust and dependence. I'll be done after this. If you're not yet a Christian, I want you to listen to me. Salvation occurs the moment, the moment in your soul and spirit, you understand those facts and you agree with God about them. But even that confession that I'm a sinner and I know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and the Savior of the world, I know that. Salvation occurs the moment that you, God, and you promised whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You said whosoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. You said that you gave your Son that whosoever believeth in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. 
Salvation occurs the moment when you understand that and agree with God to the point that you just, without moving your vocal cords, you put the full weight of your soul and your eternity on the promises of God about Jesus. I'll end up reading it. One of the seven people got baptized last week, gave the absolute best typed out testimony of salvation and the results of salvation in their life I've ever read by far. And he's sitting to my left right now. I mean, it, it's the best I've ever seen. It's like, dude, I've, I've sent that to a couple people, and one was like, that's awesome. I especially love the part where I'll read it one day. This person admitted they thought they were saved earlier in life, but they realized I'd heard it, but I don't know that I ever really heard it. don't know I heard it clear. And it wasn't until in 2017 when we're going through the book of Romans. Listen, in the service, not at the end, in the service where we're talking about a scale where the law of God is on one side and we try to put our righteousness on the other side and the scale doesn't move, but if we'll invite Jesus on the scale with all of his righteousness, it'll balance out the demands of the laws of God and Jesus supplies another. Literally while going over that, in 2017, the person was sitting there so in tune that literally as it was being preached and taught, they just had that conversation and just received it right there, sitting there. No altar call, no repeat after me, no pray this perfect prayer. I mean, hear it, believe it. I'm taking it, God. I'm resting in that and that alone. And they've since then have seen their life just like change, like a brand new person. That's what you expect to happen. So my thought this morning is this. Every elder and elder's wife in our church, you need this morning to consider, like, have I done that? Well, I felt real bad about myself. Okay. Remorse is not enough. I confessed. Confession is not enough. I'm trying to do better and make it right. That's great. That's not enough. Have you ever had that point where you've understood the facts You've agreed with God about the facts and you've rested your soul in the truth and the veracity and the honesty of what God says about Jesus. I'm just taking it. It's enough, so I'm receiving it. Every elder needs to check their heart. Every elder's wife, every deacon needs to check their heart. When did you do that? Every deacon's wife. You may be a Sunday school teacher here. You may have been a Sunday school teacher here and somewhere else for 20 years. But if you've never had a point in your life where you know that has happened, then you too have an eternal soul. You are on your way to hell. At some point, it's not me putting it perfectly. It's you who have to hear from God and just saying, God, you're right. I've been wrong. I, I receive it. I believe you, and I am taking it at this moment. I am not going to make this regretful decision like Judas did. I want today to be the day I nail it down, and I'm not going to be ashamed about it. And if it takes, I'll get baptized again just like this person did last week. I'm ready to get that all settled because it's too valuable to miss. If you're a singer on this stage, you've been doing it for years, you better check your heart. Because last I checked, you may be an elder, which I am, an elder's wife, a deacon, a deacon's wife, a teacher, a singer, a door greeter. It doesn't matter. None of us are apostles, and one of the 12 apostles is in hell. You better be sure. Heads about eyes closed. Father, would you work today? Lord, I know in this room, Lord, I'm not trying to be sensational. And Lord, Lord, you know 
Lord, you know that several people sitting here this morning, their testimony is just like that man who was baptized last week. They got saved just sitting and during a message in the middle of it. They just went ahead and got saved right then. So, Lord, only you can do that. We can't do that. Father, if there's one even unsure, Lord, let today be the day they nail it down. Help them. God, you're going to have to do it. Would you please help them understand the facts? They are a sinner. God, let them right now be walking through this with us. You and I, Lord, as we're talking, would you let them join in that flow? And Lord, what you did in my heart when I was nine years old. God, would you let them right now check themselves? Yes, I know I'm a sinner, God. Yes, God, I know my sin deserves your punishment, and you will punish my sin. But yes, God, you punished my sin already in Jesus on the cross. And yes, God, you can't lie. You can't lie. You said, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, let them track with this. God, you said, you said it. So you're out there. You have to do this. You said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved. Lord, you said, as many as believed in him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Father, you said if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we would be saved. Father, you said, Lord, let them track with this. You said if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Lord, let them know the facts and let them agree with you. Let them right now and just in seconds, just, God, you are right. He is who you said he is, and I am who you said I am. But, Lord, would you right now, just between you and them, would you go put your hands on their face and get real, real close, six inches away from them, and just speak into their soul and say, listen, why don't you right now receive it as a free gift? Don't move a muscle. Just take it and rest and rest. Just rest in my son's death. And become my child. Lord, would you just make children, new adopted children of yours at this moment, as needed. Lord, may we not have one who gets really, really close and knows a lot about the Bible and serves many years in a position in a church, but dies and goes to hell. Lord, may that not happen. May you do what only you can do. Father, as I close this prayer, God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are already saved. Lord, some of us, we struggle. We're saved. We can't ever lose our eternal life. But, Lord, we commit sin. And, Lord, it's as though we've dealt with that sin with you six, seven times through the years. Father, would you show that person that's that way this morning, just living defeated, that they have not dealt with that six or seven times. They've not dealt with it even one time. Lord, the, the Christian that has eternal life that's just living defeated because of some past sin, regret and remorse, guilt, shame. Lord, would you let them 
just like when they got saved, rest the complete weight of their soul and their relationship with you. The whole restoration is going to rest on the completed work of Christ being enough to pay for that sin. You saved us from all our sin. You just want us to come back to you and stop going away from you. Lord, give them faith as well. God, give us faith. Thank you for Jesus. He's the greatest. In his name we pray. Amen. Love to see you Wednesday night. Hope you can join us for our Bible study Wednesday night at 630.